0: After all of those inquiries formed into our little office from the Post article, groups began to form. You see, we had lists of alcoholics and their families in hundreds of cities. Consequently, we were able to supply traveling AAs with lists of prospects. And then we found, to our great joy, that groups could actually be formed in the mail the so-called mail-order groups. It was not long, for example, before we reached out to Hawaii and Australia, a process that has since carried us into more than 30 countries. But as these groups took shape, without any old-time guidance, only by the counsel of the office and an occasional traveler, group trouble started in a big way. Then the clubs began to spring up, and their peculiar brand of trouble began to roll back on our office. Well, you know what those troubles were. Money trouble, prestige trouble, committee trouble, secretary trouble, uh, panhandler trouble. The big bad wolves and the Little Red Riding Hood situation... Then all sorts of strange people, alcoholics with complications, began to show up. Up to that moment, we had always talked about something called the pure alcoholic. We were looking for alcoholics with no other complications. Alcoholics began to appear out of asylums and out of jails. And very queer specimens indeed turned up. And there was a long period in which we were literally frightened to death. All of the forces that bear on modern society to rend it apart settled down on us. Those forces which cluster around prestige and security and money and sex and the like. And we were afraid that we could not function as a movement. That our groups would be torn apart, that the forces which held us together would not be great enough to contain the terrific anarchy that was developing. In fact, we thought that we would actually present every community in America with a group of alcoholics who did not wish to get well, and that would really be something. Alcoholics singly are bad enough, were organized into regiments and platoons of those who did not want to get well. And we used to sit over here in the foundation office and shimmy and shiver as those mounting problems poured in, group problems of every kind. Well, those forces didn't tear Alcoholics Anonymous apart. The forces that contain us are immensely superior to any that have yet shown up. But in this time of adolescence, we began, of course, to apply the spirit of the Twelve Steps of Recovery to the problem of living and working together, to the problem of functioning, to the problem of serving. And... This experience, beat out on thousands of anvils, began to take definite shape after a time. In a fresh set of principles, the 12 points of AA tradition, those principles that we AAs trust with God's help will contain us in unity for so long as he may need us. We began to develop many principles which were entirely contrary to custom in the modern world. We ran counter to society in many, many respects. Many of our traditions are almost paradoxical. Of course, the very first one is just plain horse sense. In effect, our common welfare should come first, for personal recovery depends upon unity. We knew that we had to hang together or hang separately. Then the next one has to do with the idea of a group conscience. And looking back a few years, I couldn't imagine such a thing as a group conscience. I thought I was the conscience for this group. How well I can remember the first time the group conscience spoke to me and began to teach me. Things had been going pretty rough. We were awful broke over at Clinton Street. It was about the third year of A.A., One day, old Charlie Towns, up there at the hospital, called me in his office and he said, Bill, you're helping sober up all these drunks. They're getting good jobs. They're getting on, but you and Lois are broke. Why don't you come in here? Let me give you an office. Let me put you on my staff as a lay therapist. This thing actually began here in Towns Hospital. You had this funny experience of yours. I think this society will someday fill Madison Square Garden. And, Bill, I'll go further. I'll give you a third interest in the place. Oh, that sounded awful good to Lois and me. Better to me than it did to her. I told her that night when... After a hard day's work, she was cooking supper for the drunks at Clinton Street. The house was full of them, you remember. It sounded awful good. And I stilled the last of my fears by saying to myself, well, even the Bible says that the laborer is worthy of his hire. Then comes a little meeting down in that front parlor over at Clinton Street. I tell the meeting of this new opportunity. Finally, someone begins to speak. I now realize that he spoke for the group conscience. And he said, but Bill, that will be the beginning of a professional class. That will tie us up to a particular institution. Bill, you can't do this thing to us. You say it's ethical? Of course it's ethical. Perfectly ethical for you to be a lay therapist. But Bill, you can't do this thing to us. It isn't good enough. Aren't you the fellow who has often told us that sometimes the good is the enemy of the best? So spoke the group conscience to me, saying, Bill, it isn't good enough. You can't do this to us. And thank God, I listened and I obeyed. Since that time... I have been a pupil of AA and not its teacher. Then we came to have very queer ideas about membership in AA. At the beginning, scared to death, we made all sorts of membership rules excluding undesirables. We couldn't have the... Well, we were scared. We were afraid of these people. They might tear us apart. We had so many membership rules at one time that when all listed on one piece of paper would have kept us all out if they'd been in effect at once. I remember one case in particular at Clinton Street, a fellow sober six months, allowed to speak in a meeting for the first time, got up and said, this is all wonderful, all except this God business. And as for this God business, the hell with it. We don't need it. And we deacons took him in a corner and said, Look, Jimmy, you can't talk that way around here. He said, Is that so? Is that so? I don't have to belong to God, uh, believe in God to belong to this. Right in the front of that book you're putting together, it says the only requirements is an honest desire to stop drinking. I have got that honest desire. I have stopped. I got the family together. I got a job. I'm working with drunks. So am I a member or am I not? Well, he had the deacons where the hair was short. So we grudgingly admitted that he was a member. But we waited in high hope that he would soon get drunk. By and by, he accommodated us. Not a soul went to see him. And in his agony in that hotel room, he hit bottom and hit it right and hasn't had a drink to this day and became founder of our Philadelphia group. And now we look back and say, suppose we had closed the door of the court of last resort to Jimmy. Where would he be and all those he helped? and all those they have helped since. So today, you're a member of AA if you say so. Putting the ordinary social custom exactly in reverse. Nobody can keep you out. You declare yourself in. Then you remember I told you about the episode with Mr. Rockefeller. Well, we've come to adopt his view that this society should have no professional class. that we ought to pay our own bills. And God knows we can. The members of this society are earning $600 million a year. We have something to give to the community. Of course we'll pay our own bills. We had a bad time with that professional business, though. At the time they hired old Tom Mulhall down to the clubhouse for janitor, We were just going to give him a free room, you know. And Tom said, ain't you going to pay me nothing? Oh, we said, no, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, Tom. You can't make any money out of it. Tom says, listen. He said, I think you guys have got a nerve. You want me to do seven days a week, 24 hours a day, a job that you guys can't or won't do. What you want is a janitor. And you ain't willing to pay for it, and if you don't pay me, I don't work, see? And what has that got to do with the 12th step, said Tom? So, very painfully, we discovered that we could hire a caretaker. We could hire a secretary. We could even hire an author like me. Incidentally, folks, I got a raise recently. Every time you buy one of them books, I got you for 52 cents. How do you like it? Well, then came other profits. When that foundation was set up... It took in a terrific territory. We could research, we could educate, we could do anything but lobby for prohibition. But in late years, we see that AA should stick to its single purpose, that of carrying the message face-to-face to to that other alcoholic. The purpose for which we are so well-suited, the thing nobody else can do, that thing we should do and do supremely well instead of many things badly, so that we have decided that A.A. shall have only one sole aim. We cannot make alliances. We cannot give endorsements. We cannot loan out the A.A. name, even to the best of enterprises, so that they may have publicity and raise money on our credit. That would be to divert us from our aim to confuse us and finally to make it possible to attach the name Alcoholics Anonymous to all sorts of controversial situations. I know a fella came in the office one time, said, I got a job working for one of the liquor associations. I can be an educator. I said, what kind of education? Well, he said they want to teach people that too much grog is bad for everybody. And that these drunks shouldn't drink at all. I said, fine, why don't you hire out? Much surprised, he said, I thought you were against education. I said, on the contrary, I'm very much for it. But what I want to know is this. Do they just want to hire you? He said, what do you mean? Well, I said, do they want something else? Or do they just want you because you're a good publicist? Because you had the drinking experience? Well, come to find out, they wanted to be able to state in all their publicity that Mr. Joe Bloke of Alcoholics Anonymous heads up our program of education. Which would mean that in a subtle way, the AA name would be transferred over into a controversial area. I said to my friend, are you going to take the job? You know, in AA, we have no rules, laws, regulations. We only have a tradition. He said, of course I'm not going to take the job. If I took a job like that, pretty soon some screwball would hire out to the Anti-Saloon League for their brand of education, and then the fat would be in the fire and Alcoholics Anonymous would be right in the middle of that controversy. Of course I'm not going to. And that's why, as much as we would like, we cannot loan out the AA name, give endorsements, or finance other causes. Like shoemakers, we had better stick to our last. So that much is decided. We are also certain that as much as we quarrel about things that don't matter too much, we may never quarrel about religion, politics, or reform. Because those are the issues that are dividing the modern world. And thank God, ever since this thing began, I haven't heard a really angry religious or political argument. Today in Ireland, where politics and religion are terrific issues, Alcoholics Anonymous is the only friendly, really friendly roof on which people of those opposing parties can meet. So it must always be with us, or else we may really perish one day. And then we've developed very strange ideas about public relations. You and I love this good old American tradition. You and I love to stand before statues of Lee, Lincoln, Washington... We revere those people. That's not a bad trait in us. But in late years, this country is really carrying that a little far, perhaps. Today, everything in America is transacted on big names. Big Valley Who. Big personal public, strutting public characters and sometimes strutting public villains. Now, we know that for a society like ours, such things cannot be. For us, weak people that we still are, that would be the road to ruin. So, we are firmly convinced that all of us, every one, should be uh, personally anonymous at the general public level, meaning by that the level of the press, the radio, the television, and motion pictures, so that we don't create those public figures, so that we have a standing guarantee that with us, principle shall always come ahead of personality. And that very policy of anonymity at the public level, I dare say, has brought this society millions of words of freely given publicity, which has carried this message to others. Every reporter who enters here knows that no one wants anything personal. He is pleasantly refreshed that here is a society which indeed does really place principles before people, and anonymity is the guarantor of that. Indeed, I am beginning to fear that the reputation of this society is far better than its actual character, but we don't tell the reporters that. Yes, and we see in this anonymity a key to our whole tradition. A token of our growth humility. It is the cornerstone of them all. Years later, I sat in a projection room. The march of time was making a picture about Alcoholics Anonymous, a 15-minute job. The vice president of the company said to me, Do you realize that this will be shown to 12 million people? And three times during that film, the book Alcoholics Anonymous was held up to view. And it said, Alcoholics Anonymous, period. I thought to myself, if I had my name on that book, would the March of Time be displaying this society to 12 million people? Of course not. How fortunate. Oh, thank God that I did obey the group conscience. So it it was that we evolved the tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous during that exciting time of our adolescence. That time, I think, came to an end with our international convention at Cleveland last summer, 1950. As Jack Alexander's article marked the end of our infancy, so did we emerge from our adolescence at the Cleveland convention. For then and there, 7,000 of us reviewed our 12 points of AA tradition. We ask ourselves, is this the platform on which we are going to stand? Are these really the principles that will contain our society and unity? Do we dare commit our future to this platform? And the answer was a great and affirmative yes. These are the principles on which we shall stand. And right then and there, I believe, we entered maturity and we took our destiny by the hand. Now, during infancy and adolescence, There was another great idea at work. It was the idea of service, and the idea of services. None know better than we that faith without works is death. If the drunk will stay in in one piece, he not only must believe, he must act, and he must keep acting. He has to get sober and stay sober and function as a going concern. The same is true of the AA group itself. Unless it carries out its primary purpose, carries its message to the other alcoholic, unless it conforms to these traditional principles within reason, it too, we well know, can wither and die. But when we think of AA as a whole, we are not always so clear as that. We have not yet begun to realize how necessary it is for AA as a whole to function, else it too might sometime die. We have the naive notion that if we get sober, if we do some 12-step work, if we attend a group meeting or two every month or oftener, then we have done our duty, we have played our part, and as for Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole, well, God is taking care of that. Well, that notion is almost as naive and mistaken as would be the idea that God will not only provide us with forests, but he will also saw lumber and build houses. All these years, AA has functioned as a whole because of a cluster of services surrounding that original empty foundation we created back there in 1938. And you saw how independently of it we out here with the help of stories from Akron financed and put that book on the map as works publishing. I didn't tell you that later all those shares were given to the foundation so that your trustees have been holding, one of your principal service tools, in trust for you all these years. Then, when those inquiries came in by the thousands, somebody had to answer those. And we wrote out to you and said, "Won't you help us? We'll make the arrangements if you'll send us just a dollar a piece a year. It'll do the job. And incidentally, it still will if everybody would send it a dollar a piece a year. So." We helped to spread this movement. Then when group problems came in tremendous numbers, the foundation office retailed experience from the older areas to the new and growing groups, even on very distant beachheads, and has been doing it ever since. The reach of that foundation and that book is very long. A couple of years ago, A couple prospectors went into the northern wilds, two of them, both of them drunks. They went on an awful tear, and the fire went out. They almost perished of coal. And when the fires were rebuilt, they found in an old oil drum a copy of the book Alcoholics and Nuns. Our courier, under the northern lights, And one of them got sober. I guess he was the fellow who started the group up there that has the Eskimos in it. Then we found, too, that AA had to have a public relations policy. Could anybody rush to a microphone, to a radio station, or into print in a national periodical? Lord, how we used to shiver about that. Years ago, down in Florida, a well-meaning but power-driven Alki went on the radio with 13 lectures about Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous plus his ideas plus some high-power evangelism. He actually brought in a few Alkies. It was a good job. Soon he was writing up to us and saying, Well, I just got a contract with the Gulf Life Insurance Company. I'm going to give my 13 lectures to all America over a national hookup. And he wasn't going to keep his anonymity either. He sent up the 13 lectures, and from the AA point of view, they really weren't too good. They wouldn't have properly represented us. Had they been put on, the drunks would have been very angry indeed. So the office writes down... In its diplomatic way, and said, "Well, shouldn't you consult about this? Shouldn't these scripts be changed around? Should you break your anonymity?" And the drop wrote back and said, "The hell with the four trustees! Boy, that scared the daylights out of us. Could anybody do that any time to us? Or did this movement need to have a little bit of control over its own relations with the public?" And so would the million who didn't yet know. A very serious question. Well, that particular situation was solved by drawing his attention to the fact that not only did he have the right of free speech, but that a couple of thousand AA members might be encouraged to write his sponsor and his life insurance company what they really thought about the lousy program. And that killed that one off. But we then wrote out to you groups and said, will you authorize these trustees to look after these things for you? And they have been doing these things unseen and quietly all these years. You just read a swell piece in Fortune magazine about AA. I'm sure you liked it, but very few here would know that your office spent many, many hours with the author of that piece spent some of your money in long-distance telephones to Florida, had several consultations with the members of Fortune's staff, all to be sure that that piece took in the territory that it should, all to be sure that it represented A.A. rightly. And the difference between right representation and poor or wrong representation is spelled out in lives. So that today, here in our Board of Trustees, We have the custody of your money, your public relations, your principal literature, your propagation, your mediation of group problems, your correspondence with lone members, your translations making AA available in foreign lands. AA functioning as a whole. A few years ago, it was realized that an isolated board of trustees couldn't carry on for the longer future. Because when some of us old-timers went, the link between them and you would go. And then, one single blunder, one public relations error, one movement problem too hot to handle, and we'd get a collapse right here in the middle, right in the middle of our service structure. So, therefore, we saw that we had to build many links out to the movement, links which would not be perishable, like Dr. Bob and me. We saw that your representatives would have to come down here and help look after your service affairs. Otherwise, the million who didn't know could really suffer. Last summer, Lois and I were in England. There... A.A. is no better known than it was here 12 or 14 years ago. They have only a couple of medical friends. The press still won't print anything much about them. Only the Financial Chronicle will accept a paid ad that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is in business in London. Why the Financial Chronicle, I wouldn't know. The Church of England, so helpful to us here, is still indifferent over there. Now, supposing we had a breakdown some fine day right in the middle of this thing. We had a movement problem and no way to solve it. No way to hear the collective conscience of Alcoholics Anonymous. What do you suppose it would do to AA in England? Well, I know it would slow it up. It wouldn't stop it, but it would grievously retard it. Five years, maybe ten years, and so on throughout the world. And I ask you, dear AAs, supposing that AA had arrived five or ten years late for you, that is what the continuance of these services here mean. Your foundation, your office, and your grapevine, they have to go on so that AA can function as a whole. And this general service conference you've been hearing about is just... A state and provincial representation gathering yearly with our trustees so that those services will go on. In other words, we're now saying, you've grown up. Come and look after your own business. Come and maintain your lifelines to the million who don't know. And that is what led to this whole idea of a legacy of service. Because we realized that we must function, or wither, and maybe die. So before Dr. Bob passed away, a pamphlet was prepared called The Third Legacy, in which we offered to you this whole ideal of service and these services clustering around the foundation in particular. In conclusion, then... I will read you an excerpt or two from that document and conclude with a reading of the actual legacy itself. Suppose, then, all these years we had been without the, those services. Where would we be today minus the AA book? ...and our standard literature, which now pours out of AA headquarters at the rate of eight tons a month. Supposing our public relations had been left to thoughtless chance. Suppose no one had been assigned to encourage good publicity and discourage the bad. Suppose no accurate information about AA had been available... Imagine our vital and delicate relations with medicine and religion left to pot luck. As a matter of fact, almost every religious denomination has endorsed AA. Great medical associations such as New York State Medical, American Psychiatric, have heard papers read by us laymen. It can't be supposed that was an accident. Somebody has been looking after these things. Then, too, where would thousands of AAs be today if the office hadn't answered their frantic letters and referred them toward help? In what shape would hundreds of distant groups now be if that office hadn't started them by mail or directed travelers to them? How could we have managed without a world group directory? What about those foreign groups in 28 countries, clamoring for translations, proved experience, and encouragement? Would we be publishing the book at Oslo, Norway, and London, England? What of those lone members on high seas or in far corners of the earth? Those prisoners, those asylum inmates, those veterans in service or in hospitals. Where might we one day be if we never had the grapevine? our mirror of AA life and principal forum of written expression. How grateful we are for those secretaries, editors, and friendly trustees who have stood sentinel all these years over our principal affairs. Without these things, where would we be? You must have guessed it. We'd be nowhere, that's sure. So it is, by the steps we have recovered... By the traditions we have unified, and by our headquarters services, we have been able to function as a society. Why not leave well enough alone? Some may still say, of course the foundation should go on. Certainly we'll pay that small expense. But why can't we leave its conduct to Dr. Bob and Bill and their friends, the trustees? We always have. Why do they not bother us with such business? Let's keep AA simple. Good questions, these. But today, the answers are quite different than they once were. Let's face these facts. First, Dr. Bob and Bill are perishable. They can't last forever. Second, their friends, the trustees, are almost unknown to the AA movement. Third, in future years, our trustees couldn't possibly function. Without direct guidance from AA itself, somebody must advise them. Somebody or something must take the place of Dr. Bob and Bill. Fourth, Alcoholics Anonymous is out of its infancy. Growing up, adult now, it has the full right and plain duty to take direct responsibility for its own headquarters. Fifth, clearly then... Unless the foundation is firmly anchored through state and provincial representatives to the movement it serves, a headquarters breakdown will someday be inevitable. When its old-timers vanish, an isolated foundation couldn't survive one grave mistake or serious controversy. Any storm could blow it down. Its revival wouldn't be simple. Possibly it could never be revived. Like a fine car without gasoline, it would be helpless. Hence our legacy of service, and here it is. We, who are the older members of AA, bequeath to you who are younger these three legacies, the 12 steps of recovery, the 12 traditions, and now the general services of Alcoholics Anonymous. Two of these legacies have long been in your keeping. By the 12 steps, we have recovered. By the traditions, we are achieving a fine unity. Being someday perishable, Dr. Bob and I now wish to deliver to the members of AA their third legacy. Since 1938, we and our friends have been holding it in trust. This legacy is the general headquarters of AA, the foundation, the book, the grapevine, your general office. These are the principal services which have enabled our society to function and to grow. Acting on behalf of all, Dr. Bob and I ask that you, the members of AA, assume guidance of these services and guard them well. The future growth, indeed the survival of Alcoholics Anonymous, may one day depend on how prudently these arms of service are administered in the years to come. So, my dear friends, there is your third legacy of service. And with me, I am sure that you now clearly vision that our Cathedral of the Spirit is approaching completion in its main outline. On its great floor, we see the 12 steps of recovery inscribed. You and I have seen its sidewalls go up, now firmly buttressed by our twelve traditions. Now, clearly, we see that the spire is there in place, and we know the name of that spire to be service, a beacon to the million who do not yet know. And may its symbolic finger ever point straight upward toward God.